this morning shall be from Romans chapter 8. We'll read the first 12 verses of Romans 8. First 11 verses of Romans 8. You'll find that on page 1131 of the Bible in the pew there. 1131. And we'll read Romans 8. Let's begin with verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the the flesh is death. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, indeed, the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And we'll stop there. So congregation this morning, and we hope to have the catechism sermon. Usually we would do that in the evening. Uh, this catechism sermon, however, is, is uh, a rather challenging sermon. Uh, uh, you might call it a kind of a heavy sermon. Uh, and so I thought it good to bring it to the morning service where we're probably a little more fresh and to uh, really focus our minds upon this truth of total depravity as it's given us in the catechism. I also expect that after this sermon you may have questions for me. And you know that I always welcome those. Uh, this, this topic raises a good deal of Uh, Well, it has a lot of implications for life, and uh, I hope to bring out a few of those this morning, and uh, of course, uh, you're always welcome to speak with me about those things if anything remains unclear, or if even you disagree with something that may be said. At any rate, we have then the Heidelberg Catechism, question 8, before us this morning. It's very short, very concise, and very, uh, very decisive. So you see that on your, on your outline there, I put the question eight, but are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? And the answer given us is yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. So really all the theology in this uh, catechism is in the question, isn't it? It's all in the question there. Are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good 
and incline toward all evil? And the answer just given is just basically just yes. And that's the truth then that we want to think about. Are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and incline toward all evil? And you can see the heading I put there is, how bad is it? Because you remember that last week we talked about, uh, uh, well, you know, in, in past sermons we've talked about the, the misery of man. I don't think, uh, you know, anybody questions that, that there's a great deal of misery in this world. And we asked, where does that misery come from? Right? Where is the origin? And we talked about uh, the, the, the Garden of Eden, right? Where God set before man the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from which they were to abstain and the tree of life from which they were to eat abundantly if they chose. And you remember that man chose to go contrary to that and he plunged himself into sin and to evil. And so the question then really this morning is, well, how bad is it? How, how deep has man fallen? And, and you can hardly come any lower, really, can you, than, this, than, the, than the, what our catechism gives us. Totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil. So you see, they're totally unable to do any good, right? Our actions are evil. But just like I, uh, if you can remember back to the sermon on the image of God, and, and before that, remember we said that the depravity of man is not just a matter of his, of his actions, right? But it goes even deeper than that. It goes into the very soul of man, into his heart as the Bible. That's the language of the Bible, right? His heart is evil and wicked. So it's not just that he does evil, but he's inclined towards it. He, he runs to it as something that he, he loves and he, he relishes it like a pig would run towards mud, right? Uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's their nature. And so it is also in the human life. So the prognosis is very bad, isn't it? Very bad. Completely corrupt. Unable to do any good. Inclined toward all evil. Well, is that the teaching of Scripture? Clearly the Catechism has a very dim view of human nature. But is that the teaching of the Bible? And that's always our question, isn't it? With all respect for the Catechism, we come back to the Bible and say, is that the teaching of Scripture? And congregation, I have to say that it's the teaching of Scripture in so many different places that I, I really, this week, had to finally settle on one and just choose one. Uh, there's so many different places where the Bible talks about depravity. In fact, congregation, what is the message of the Old Testament? What is the message of the history of Israel? Take it all from Exodus 20, where God made the covenant with them at Mount Sinai, all the way up to Malachi. What's the one message? Always the same. Maybe, maybe you could think, especially the book of Judges, right? Where it's always the same thing, right? Israel, they, they have a few promising moments and then they plunge themselves back down into sin and, and evil again. And God punishes them. And it's the same story, no matter which prophet you read. In the book of Kings, in the book of Chronicles, in the book of Samuel, all the histories, the message is always the same. Israel is a failure. No matter what God does for His people, they always sink back into unbelief and evil and idolatry. The message is always the same. So again, I, I, I chose Romans 8 because it's such a clear passage. But really the message is, is so plain on almost all the pages of Scripture of the depravity of man. So if you would take your Bible then and you look with me at Romans 8, let me look with you then at the verses that we have here. Again, Paul's language is so condensed that sometimes it's very difficult to, to try to understand what exactly he's, he says and what he means. But in verse 8, he has this triumphant, sorry, in chapter 8 and verse 1, Romans 8 and verse 1, he has this triumphant declaration 
that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and simply what that means, congregation, is there's no more guilty verdict. In God's courtroom, the guilty verdict that we certainly would expect, no more. And for one simple reason, in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. That's the last words of that verse, verse 1, chapter 8. In Christ Jesus. And when a sinner is brought into union with Christ, then the righteousness of Christ becomes that sinner's. And also the reverse, the guilt of the sinner becomes Christ. Right? There's that great exchange. <coughs> verse 2 continues, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. There it is again. You know, Paul says it so many times in so many different ways. When we are in Christ, that guilty verdict goes away. We have been set free from the law of sin and death. And then in verse 3, we see the inability of the law. The law could not do it. The law could not get rid of that guilty verdict. Isn't it interesting how Paul likes to personify things? So we think about the law as a person here, right? The person came and he tried to save us, but he couldn't do it. His, he, it was insufficient. He couldn't, he couldn't pull it off. The law could not save us. Now what does that mean? Actually, that means that when we come to the law and when we try to be saved by keeping the law, we fail. That's, that's the very simple truth. The law was not... Why couldn't the law do it? Because it was weak through the flesh, right? Our own sinful nature, right? Paul, he uses the term flesh to mean sinful nature. Well, that sinful nature within us, it prevents us from obeying the law. And so there's no salvation by that way. But now what the law could not do, God did do. The law couldn't do it, but God could, right? And in verse 3, how did he do it? He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Why does he say likeness? Because he wasn't really sinful, right? It was, he was like sinful flesh. Okay? He was, he was certainly flesh, but he had no sin. That's why Paul slips that word in there, the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin. Right? And that's the great sin offering. Right? We've talked about that here before. In the Old Testament, that sin offering. Well, God saved us, not by making us obey the law, but by sending His Son as a sin offering. And Jesus was condemned to death and we were set free. Verse 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And now we get really to what I was aiming at here. Because notice Paul says all this glorious salvation is for those who are walking not those who are walking according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So two different people here. You have on the one side those who are walking according to the flesh. That means they're under the rule of their own sinful nature. The sinful desires that fill their minds, they walk in accordance with those desires. That is, the, that is their leader. That is the uh, driving factor, the controlling factor in their life. And on the right hand, or on the other hand here, you have those who are walking according to the Spirit. The controlling factor, the driving force in their life is the Spirit of God. Those two people, and that's really key now for almost, really, for the next 20 verses, really, Paul continues with those two groups in mind. Right? In verse 5, he says, those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And by flesh there you should read sinful desires. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Verse 6, he continues to talk about 
The result, where these things lead, the mindset on the flesh is death. It leads to death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. It leads to life and peace. And then we have in verse 7, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. And so here we see the first sort of connection then between what scripture teaches and what our catechism has been teaching us. Because our catechism says that man is so corrupt that he's totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil. And we had asked the question, is that what the Bible teaches? And now here we have our first clue. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. Now that's important. Because the scripture is not just teaching us that people who are under the control of the flesh are friendly to God. They, they don't happen to believe Him. Uh, I mean, you'll hear people say today, you know, I, I, I don't have faith. Right? And so they're, they're seekers. Or, 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 you know, they're, they're friendly to the cause of religion, to the cause of God. Maybe they even wish they could be believers, but they just don't see it. But the scripture says that those people who are walking according to the flesh are hostile toward God. They are enemies of God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. And then you see that last clause there, congregation, just a few words in the Greek language. But the hammer falls with dreadful force with those words. Oh, how many people wouldn't want to scrub these words from the Bible? A congregation, maybe even in our own life, sometimes we come to that point where we just assume these words weren't here. For it is not even able to do so. You see that at the end of verse 7? For it is not even able to do so. It does not subject itself. These, these people who are under the control of their own sinful desires, they do not subject themselves to the law of God. And they're not able to do so. They do not have within them what it takes to make that choice to subject themselves to the law of God because of that hostility that burns within them against God and against His law. And then verse 8. What words these are. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Notice notice. Dear friends, it does not say that they, they, they do not please God. It says they cannot please God. This is a statement about the ability of those who are under the flesh. Those who are under the control of their own sinful desires are not able to please God. And so I take you back to the catechism, congregation, and I really want you to know and to see with your own eyes, in your own Bible, when the catechism says we are totally unable to do any good, the catechism didn't make that up. Right? Our, the, our, our fathers who were Calvinists, and really that, that's, a, that's a terrible name, isn't it? Calvinists, right? Because, I mean, of course, we don't follow Calvin, right? But the biblical teaching clearly is that man is not able to do any good. He's not able to please God. And he's inclined towards all evil. Again, the text said, not just that he's totally unable to do good, but it goes farther and it says that his heart is hostile towards God. He has an enmity towards God. 
Now, that's not a pleasant truth, is it? But I think we clearly can see that whatever we might think of what the Catechism says there, that clearly is the teaching of Scripture. Clearly is the teaching of the Apostle Paul here. Let me move then to my second point there. What is good? What is the good? This can come to our minds as we, as we think about this truth, and we can just think practically of people who we know are, are not believers in Christ. And we think to ourselves, you know, I, they love their children. Uh, maybe they even give money to charity. You know, my, my neighbor who's not a believer mowed my lawn for me when I was sick or ill or whatever. Wasn't able to do it. I mean, you know, people do good things, right? Isn't that just a trifle extreme when it says totally unable to do any good? And the scripture is saying that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Is that not pleasing to God when unregenerate, unbelieving people help out another person or, or do what they can to relieve the misery of those who are in uh, trouble or distress of some kind? And this is, a, this is a question that comes up often. And so it brings us then to confront this issue of, well, what is the good? What does it mean to be good? And again, here our catechism helps us. If you take your, the Psalter hymnal, and in the back you turn to page 91, you can see that our catechism helps us understand what is a good work. Because our catechism has a very... Oh, sorry, it's not... Oh, it's question and answer 91, sorry. So if you turn to the catechism, and it's page uh, 45. 45 in the back of the Blue Psalter hymnal, you'll have question and answer 91 of the Catechism, which answers this question for us, what do we do that is good? Or what is a good work? Is really what it's answering here. What is a good work? And the answer given is only that which arises out of true faith, conforms to God's law, and is done for His glory. And I'll just stop there arises out of true faith, that's where it comes from, it conforms to God's law, that's what it is, and what its purpose is, is done for His glory. Now that's important, congregation, to understand what a good work is. Because a good work is not just something that conforms to God's law, but biblically, for something to please God, it has to come from a heart of faith, it has to come from a heart of trust and confidence in God, and it has to be done for His glory. It comes from faith, it conforms to God's law, and it aims at God's glory. That's what a good work is. In order for a work to be good, it has to conform to those three things. And just to make it simpler, let's just make it two things. That it has to come from a good motive, and it has to be a good work. So why did you do what you did? And what did you do? And I know this gets a bit technical, but this really helps us address this question of what is a good work. Let me just give you an example. We have the baskets here full of money and checks, whatever, and those baskets went up and down the aisles and you put your you chose to put your tithe, your offering, into that basket. Now is that a good work? Let's think about what it is. Is that a good work? And I think everybody would say certainly that's a good work. So it's a good work. But why was it done? Now, there may be some people here 
who because they love God and they're trusting in Him as their Savior, they're walking with Him day by day, and out of the abundance of what God's given them, they say, Lord, I give to you this tithe. Well, now we see that not only is it a good work, what it is, but that the motive which led the person to perform that good work is also good. May I call it a good, good work. A good, good work. A good motive and a good work. And again, in the, in the, in the math, the biblical math here, a good motive and a good work equals pleasing to God. But perhaps there were other people here Right? And hopefully no one here, but certainly we know in the Bible that there were those who gave their alms to be seen of men. Right? As they peeled off their, their bills and dropped them in the plate, they wanted people to see. Look how much I give to the cause of God. And their heart was puffed up with pride. And they wanted people to see. Well, now you have a good work, but done with a bad motive. Again, may I call it a bad, good work, and in the equation, congregation, equals not pleasing to God. Not pleasing to God. In fact, those kind of works are a stench in God's, in God's nostrils, so to say. They're an abomination to Him. It was done with a bad motive, but it was a good work. It's not pleasing to God. Now, if you continue, congregation, you can flip that around and you can take a, a bad thing, right? You can take, say, for instance, taking a person's life. Right? And just let me be very brief here. If you take a person's life because you want to steal his money or his, his, his possessions, right? you have a bad work done with a bad motive. That's not pleasing to God. Right? You see how important the motive is. But what about taking someone's life for a good motive? Say, to protect your own life or the life of your loved ones. Now you have a, a good motive, a bad work, but it still equals pleasing to God, doesn't it? It was done with the right spirit. And it is pleasing to God. Even if we have to take a life to protect our own or the life of our loved ones. Don't you see, congregation, how the, 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 the biblical teaching on what a good work is comes down not just to what is done, but it comes down into the heart, doesn't it? It comes down into our soul. And it judges the motives, the why we do what we do. And that's much deeper than just what we've done, isn't it? That's why even a good work like giving alms to the Lord's service can become a bad work. And a bad work can be changed into a good work when done with a right motive. Now, I know there's much more to be said about that. Uh, and it's, it's, of course, it's not always that simple. But I, I think I, I, I'm trying to make clear to you that a good work is a good work that is done from a right motive. And now that brings us back to that question. What about the, all the good things that people do? And yet they're still unbelievers. They're still unregenerate. Well, now I think we can, we can understand that. They, they can do good things, right? And even the reformers, right? You can, you can read this in Calvin's uh, Institutes, right? He'll talk about them doing uh, what, he, what he would call like a civic good, right? They can do something that is externally, it's a good action. But because it's done from a wrong motive, it's not pleasing to God. All their good works then are bad good works, which equals not pleasing to God. Well, congregation, that's why the catechism can say that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil. It's not saying that people can't do an externally good action that conforms to the law of God. But they never do it from a motive of faith. They never do it from a purpose to glorify God. 
And therefore, all their actions, even their best actions, are still not pleasing to God. And to repeat the scripture, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In the flesh means you're driven by those sinful desires of your own natural heart. And when your actions, even your good actions, are driven by those sinful desires, then there's nothing left of the goodness of your actions anymore. And it's all a heap of unpleasing things to God. Uh, it's, uh, it's detestable to Him. So, what is the good? Well, congregation, let me make some, some points of application on this. My first point pertains then, again, uh, it's a theological point, to the five points of Calvinism, which I think we were all trained on from our youth to understand. And what can we say now about the other points? There's five points, right? And the total depravity, if we're going to use the tulip, right? The T is the total depravity. But all the other points just flow from this first one. Nothing more needs to be said, really. If, let a person once agree that a person, apart from the grace of God, is totally depraved, then all the other four points of Calvinism follow. And let me just say it. If election is conditioned, you know, the U is unconditional election. Well, if election, if God's choice of us to be saved is dependent upon us making a choice, how can that possibly work with a totally depraved person who can't, who's not able to make that choice? The man driven by the flesh is not able to please God then why are we talking about an unregenerate man making a choice to believe in God and to trust Him and to follow Him? And then God chooses that one, right? Conditional election would be that God, that God looks in His foreknowledge and sees who's going to believe in Him, and then He chooses them. But if that believing then is, is, is our part, and God simply sees it, Right? He doesn't determine it. The Calvinists would say that God determines it. He brings them to believe the gospel, right? But the other, the Arminian position, the remonstrant position, was that God simply sees it. Oh, he sees that this one will believe, and this one, and this one, and now he chooses that one. Well, if we're talking about totally depraved people, then we can't talk about them making some kind of choice that would be pleasing to God, and then God choosing them. Conditional election is, is, is impossible. It saves no one. Think about the L, limited atonement. If the atonement did no more for one group of people than it did for everybody else, follow me here? If the atonement did nothing more for believers than it did for everyone, then who finally makes the difference in our salvation? We do, right? And that's the teaching of the Remonstrance, that by the atonement of Christ, He lifted everybody up to a savable position. He lifted them up to that place and now God steps back. And we have to make that final choice to take hold of it, to believe it, and to be saved. Well, again, congregation, if we're talking about totally depraved people, how can they make that final choice, right? To take hold of the death of Christ for them. If they're totally depraved, they need something more, don't they? They need, they need the grace of God to come and to bring them to make that choice. An unlimited atonement 
Wouldn't save anybody. Think about irresistible grace. Right? Irresistible grace, the I in tulip. If grace was resistible, and grace is resistible. Of course, people resist grace all the time, don't they? But irresistible grace is saying that they never successfully resist it. Right? Eventually, God overcomes their resistance and brings them into the kingdom of God. Well, if grace was actually successfully resistible, if people actually could successfully push away God's call, again, who would be saved? Because people can't make that. No totally depraved person can make that choice for God. And perseverance of the saints. Who would persevere if God didn't preserve? So the five points. These other four points really just are footnotes to the first point. If you believe in total depravity, then the other points follow as a matter of course. Well, congregation, let me move to the second point of application on self-esteem. Self-esteem. Now I have a quote there that I'd like to read with you. This is a quote from a Reformed minister named Robert Schuller. I don't know if Robert Schuller has ever been quoted from this pulpit before, but uh, let's read this quote. And he says, If only we could love ourselves enough to dare approach God, what constructive dreams he would give us. But we feel too unworthy. So one layer of negative behavior is laid upon another until we emerge as rebellious sinners. But our rebellion is a reaction, not our nature. So Pastor Schuller is saying a rebellion is not in our nature, it's, it's something that we do as a reaction. By nature we are fearful, not bad. Original sin is not a mean streak, it is a non-trusting inclination. The core of original sin, then, is L-O-T, lack of trust, and he means lack of trust in ourselves. Or it could be considered an innate inability to adequately value ourselves. So original sin is an is a inability to adequately value ourselves. Label it a negative self-image. But do not say that the central core of the human soul is wickedness. If this were so, then truly the human being is totally depraved. But positive Christianity does not hold to human depravity, but to human inability. I am humanly unable to correct my negative self-image until I encounter a life-changing experience with non-judgmental love bestowed upon me by a person whom I admire so much that to be unconditionally accepted by him is to be born again. Now, congregation, this is the Reformed minister, right? This is a Reformed man. This is a man in the Reformed Church of America saying these things. And I just hope that as we read that, you you see how diametrically opposed that is to the teaching of Scripture. In fact, Robert Schuller, my friends, uh, as we considered in the past, is a false prophet. Now, he's not alive anymore, but the man was a false prophet. Now, I don't doubt that Robert Schuller did some good. And that he helped out some people. But congregation, this, this message will take you to hell. And that's what a false prophet is. If you learn to value yourself, if you learn to have esteem for your own person as you are, you go lost with that. You can't be saved if you have a positive self-image. 
And I know that you're going to say, well, you know, isn't there some esteem that we're supposed to have for ourselves? Yes, certainly. You esteem yourselves in terms of what you have become by the grace of God. Again, to take you back to what Paul taught us, right, in, in, in Romans 8, that there's no guilty verdict against those who are in Christ. Congregation, if you talk about yourself outside of Christ, there's nothing to esteem there. At least nothing morally, nothing, no, no ethical reason to look at yourself apart from Christ and to be proud of that or to love that or to value that. That is a false gospel. And until we come to the point in our life to recognize that we are lost in sin, that we are guilty, and that God could cast us from his presence forever and forever, and that that would be the just thing to do. We can't even get to first base in the gospel. We can't even make it to the ABCs of true religion. Oh, how thankful we should be that our catechism deals honestly with us this morning. And that we don't have corrupt men spinning lies out of their own mind. That we should value ourselves. And on the contrary, dear congregation, what a blessing it is that we can value ourselves so much when we see ourselves in Christ. Because Peter would even say, I am a partaker of the divine nature. He's not saying that he's God, but he's saying that in Christ... He has a God-like nature. How can you esteem yourself higher than that? In one sense, I would say Robert Schuller doesn't have enough self-esteem. Because when we look at ourselves and what we've become by the grace of God, then, then, then self-esteem, why? You can hardly call it self-esteem. It's, it's, God has made such a difference in us. And you can have a positive self-image that's off the charts. Not because of anything that you are for yourself or anything that's in your own depraved heart, but because of what you've become in Christ. This is how we are to look at self-esteem. The news is so bad if you are outside of Christ this morning, dear friend. If you're not a believer this morning, oh, the news is just wretched. You are lost in a miserable sink of sin and guilt. But congregation, if by the hand of faith you've taken hold of Jesus Christ, then you can hardly say enough good about it. Again, I, I go back to what Peter says, I am a partaker of the divine nature. How can you get higher than that? I am one with Jesus Christ. That's where we find, that's not really a self-image, is it? It's, a, it's, a, it's seeing ourselves for what we are by the grace of God. And this Robert Schuller, what a pity, congregation, that so many people believed that lie. So I, I, I challenge you to think seriously about the self-esteem. This, the idea that people should think highly of themselves is just not even debated anymore. In so many circles, it's just assumed that you, you should think highly of yourself. You should value yourself. You should love yourself. That you need to have confidence in your own ability. Boy, how the, how the Word of God just shatters that today. Nowhere, dear friends, has the concept of self-esteem taken faster hold than in the, in the realm of education, in the third point here, in education. Now, I know some of us are teachers here, uh, but in a sense, all of us are teachers, right? Many of us have children or grandchildren, 
And we care about their character. We care about raising them up and teaching them uh, the things of the kingdom of God and teaching them the things of, of earth with the things they need to live and to function in society here. And this, the standard uh, philosophy of education today is that children are good and they need to be bettered. And they just need to be directed and, and changed. But congregation in reformed circles, we have to reject that. You know, one time I used to teach at the school on Pratt Road there. We had a, a man, a consultant come in and, uh, and he, 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 he sat down to teach us about education. And he said, children are, are like a, a, bo a board, like a piece of wood here, right? And it's kind of rough, uh, but we, we sand it smooth, right? And, and just like this, right, you put the stain on it, right? And what does that do? It brings out that beautiful grain there. The grain was there all along, right? But the stain brings it out and makes it beautiful. That's what education is. Well, again, congregation, we have to reject that. And actually, my principal, I still remember him saying, I still remember him challenging the man on saying, now, now, so, so what about total depravity? And of course, that's, that's the question, isn't it? Because children, to carry on the analogy, it's not that the board is, is just a little rough and needs some sanding and needs some stain. It's, it's infested with termites, if we could say, right? It's rotten to the core. It needs to be replaced. And so when we think about our children, when we think about education, we don't think about just kind of steering children in this direction and, and trying to show them this path, right? They need a new nature from God. This is why education on secular principles is, is almost impossible. Because, because secular people and so many Christian people today don't even accept the fact that children need a new nature in the first place. They have to be not just redirected. They have to be remade. They need a whole... What does the Bible say? You need a new heart. A new heart. And when we think about education, we have to think about that. That, that, that children, too, are, are, are depraved. And that no amount of education or, or positive example, and those are all important things, but no amount of that We'll change them. They need a new nature. They need to have the corrupt heart, the old heart, the hard heart the, uh, thrown out and taken out. And they need to be given a heart of flesh. I hope to say some more about that uh, this evening. But again, the gospel of self-esteem is so rooted in educational circles and in Christian educational circles. Let's not even think now about the secular schools, but in Christian schools. The idea that children need a new nature from God. They need a new heart. Congregation, we must confess these things because the scripture teaches us these things. And we don't start off by teaching children that they're wonderful and talented and beautiful in themselves. There's a different message that needs to come. Well, congregation, in the last place, in my last point there, perversion. Because so many times we can take a, a truth from God as total depravity, and we can misapply it. We can hold to this truth, and we can misapply it. And the natural misapplication of this truth, well then, if we are totally depraved, if I can do no good thing, if I can do nothing that is pleasing to God, well then, there's nothing for me to do. And, and many people, I, I, especially in my own background, uh, would, would even sit back and and, and not even embrace the salvation that God brings them and calls them to, uh, to believe, 
because they say they're totally depraved. And so they can do nothing. So they just sit back and they wait. And you have churches of hundreds and hundreds of people waiting for God to save them. Now, congregation, that's a very clear perversion of this truth of total depravity. In fact, the very truth of total depravity should drive us out of ourselves to Jesus Christ. Now, of course, it's true that we confess that for a person to do that, God's grace has to go before. God has to give them that new heart. But let us never sit back and think that if I'm not saved, then the best thing I can do is just pray and wait and hope that God will save me someday. Now, I suspect that's not a huge temptation for many people in this church, but still, there can be, there can be other things, right? We can look at the world outside this church and we can say, oh, they're totally depraved. Nothing we do is going to save them. So then I just sit here and I pray that God someday will miraculously save them. And of course we should pray. And if they're saved, it will be a miracle, that's for sure. But congregation, the scripture is very clear on our call to step out and to meet those people. To confront them with the claims of the gospel. To lovingly embrace them in the arms of love. To pity them for their misery. To pity them for their self-chosen path of destruction. And to call them to join us. Come with us on the way to eternal life. Come to Jesus Christ. That's our responsibility. The same God who taught us that there is nothing that a man driven by the flesh can do to please God, the same God said, strive to enter in at the straight gate. And I think you're probably aware that that word strive there is agonize. Agonize to enter in at the straight gate for yourself, for your families, and for all people. The same God says, go. Go and work. Labor, while it is still called today. And God blesses our labor. He blesses our work. So congregation, this is, this is such an unsettling, it's like an earthquake, isn't it? This whole idea of total depravity. It upends so many things that are taught us in our culture today. But I pray that we would be faithful to the truth of God's word and to the gospel as it's been handed down to us. And in, and in a sense, congregation, it's such a liberating truth. It's such a liberating truth to know that there's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. We can just rest upon Him. That God does everything and we do nothing in our salvation. And once having learned that truth, we step out. We step out to meet that neighbor. We step out to meet that colleague. We have lunch with this young woman or this young man or this older one. And we say the gospel. We teach them the principles of the truth of God's Word. And God blesses that. And that's the beautiful job, beautiful calling of everyone here, congregation. If you confess the name of Christ this morning, then God says, go. And Hera uh, told me, bloom where you're planted. Right? Put the, let the seed of God fall wherever you are, in your workplace, in your school, in your college, wherever you are, in your neighborhood, let the word of God bloom and bear fruit. It's all his work. He'll take care of it. You just bring the message. You just work and leave it all with God. May God bless us to be such ministers of his grace in our lives. Let us pray.
Almighty God, we draw near to you at the close of this sermon. And Lord, this is a message that is so difficult for our flesh to receive. And yet we also recognize, Lord, that in a sense, even this message is good news for us. It's good news for lost mankind. That where the law was not able to save us, you were able to save us by sending your Son in the flesh and having him die as a sin offering for sinful people. He to the cross and we set free. Set free to live a life of love and of peace. Lord, in this way, we can step out into our dark, broken world and herald forth the gospel of a crucified king. And Lord, we do pray that you would bless our efforts, even our smallest efforts. Lord, even the cup of cold water which we give to someone who is in distress. Lord, will you bless it? Will you own it? Will you call that person by your almighty grace out of darkness and into your marvelous light? Lord, make us to be good ministers of the new covenant. Good ministers, faithful ministers of this truth and of this gospel. And Lord, we do pray for our dear children. How earnestly we desire, O God, that they would have that new nature that comes from you. Lord, we're thankful when we see signs in our children uh, that they have this new nature, that they have been reborn by the Spirit of God. But Lord, we long to see that it would be deeper, and that they would learn more and more to love the Savior, to seek His way, and to walk in His commandments. Lord, will you work in each heart. Lord, we pray for those here who are yet for their uh, who, are not un, who are not regenerate, who are still walking under the control of their own sinful desires. Lord, if there are those here, will you call them, Lord, by your effectual, irresistible call and bring them into the glory of the kingdom of God. Lord, we commit ourselves then into your hands and pray that you would bless us and remember us in your mercy. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.